Welcome to the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast with Amy Wheeler. I've had the good fortune to travel the world learning about yoga therapy on a global scale. And I've been able to meet many of the leaders in the field along the way. I want to share with you what I'm learning as I interview our colleagues from around the world. My hope is that together we can reduce suffering of all sentient beings through our work as yoga teachers and yoga therapists. Give Back Yoga University is our partner in creating social change, and they help us to produce and promote this podcast. They are a charitable organization that helps bring yoga to those in need. If you'd like to see the video version of this recording, you can do so by donating to Give Back Yoga University at www.givebackyoga.org. And now I'd like to introduce our guest for this week. Amy Wheeler here with Joy Stone, and I cannot wait to introduce you to Joy. She is a longtime colleague and friend, and we're going to talk about anxiety and management of it, or maybe working with it in a new way that you haven't thought of. And we're going to talk about self-doubt. But first, I just have a couple of announcements. The first one is that Give Back Yoga has this great program where you can come on the podcast with us every Thursday and take two other courses in their library for $19 a month. And I just think that's a great deal. And we'd love to have you here with us on the podcast any Thursday. So keep that in mind. You can go to givebackyoga.org to sign up for that. And then also the Optimal State Yoga Therapy School is our sponsor this week. We have two uh, things coming up. One is a nine-day module on mental health uh, assessment and therapeutic planning from a yoga therapy perspective. So everything from trauma to addiction to ADHD we'll be talking about, and that's in July. And in September, we have a very similar course for the physical body, your neck, your arm, your leg, your knee, your hip, again, assessment of these areas and therapeutic planning. So that's every September. We kind of keep the same schedule every year. And we'd love to have you come to www.amywheeler.com and find out more. Joy, so nice to see you this morning. How are you feeling? I'm good. I woke up feeling great this morning. It, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes you wake up and you feel really good. And other times you can wake up and you feel like heavy. But this morning, this Monday, I woke up feeling like the birds were singing and I, I felt really good. And that, that feels nice because this first part of the month has been sort of, or this first part of the year has felt a little hectic. So, yeah. I agree. And, and do you, can you trace that to anything you did this weekend or why do you think you woke up hearing the birds singing this morning? Because <laughs> I have that too, where sometimes I'm just depressed for no reason or anxious for no reason. But usually in my case, it's because I haven't been taking very good care of myself. So how about you? Yeah, I definitely this weekend, I had a real heart to heart, authentic soul showing conversation with my husband, just about some mm -hmm. things that that I needed and just the, some things I was feeling. And I don't even know if I was aware that I was feeling all of the things I shared with him, but it was, it was an act of self-care just to like be seen and to show up real. And just after this first part of the year, you know, my son's getting out of school, summer starting here. It's been the balance. I know a lot of us can relate to of with, if you have kids taking care of your kids and your own dreams and passions outside of that and balancing it all. And I started having some of those stories going on in my mind of I'm not doing enough. I'm not enough. Well, I can't get it all done. So I might as well give up. And those anxious thoughts are coming up and that comparing myself to others. And I can get, I can get resentful. I can get angry. That can start to stew inside of me. And I, I think it was, it was very important that I shared that with my husband in a way of not blaming him, but saying, Hey, here's how I've been feeling. I need to do something about this. And so it felt good to feel supported, I guess, when I woke up this morning after having that conversation with my husband. Yeah. It sounds so empowering, you know, <laughs> to, to have this realization that I've not been feeling well, there's something going on inside of me that I need to pay attention to. And as you teach us in your books, those signals of anxiety or depression or self-doubt, those are messengers and mm -hmm. to tell us, Hey, something's off here and, yeah. and pay attention. 
it's not that we should numb them or cover them up or repress those messengers. They're, they're right. there for a reason. And, and so you took it into your own hands and said, okay, messenger, I hear you. And I'm going to have that hard conversation and yeah. we're going to, we're going to make it through. Yeah, definitely. And I think that comes from this whole idea of like, I grew up feeling anxious. I grew up with some trauma in my background and that sort of starting to believe that, well, I don't want anybody to really see how I'm feeling, or I don't really want to burden anyone. Or I, you know, those sort of some scars, those patterns can come up and it can make the whole situation worse. And I think through the, the yoga practice and through living this way of life, it's been, oh, let me lean into that discomfort and let me actually like, just let me move toward it instead of, like you said, suppressing it or pushing it down or resisting it that it, but sometimes it takes me a minute still to get there to say, let me lean into this. Let me get real, you know, let me show you how I'm actually feeling instead of having to be perfect and have it all figured out and then present myself to you, which is how I used to live for so many years, you know? So yeah, it's so important to listen to those messages. The word that just came up when I heard you talking was, wow, she's vulnerable. She's willing exactly what you said to show up in an imperfect way or so we perceive and show yourself before you're got the image or the mask or the camera ready face on, you know? Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. And I think just as you're sharing that, this idea came up with how so many of us over this last year and a half, especially have brought our work more to the social media, more to the world where we're being seen. And that sort of story that we can have in the back of our head. And I could fall into this too, where, oh, I need to be perfect. I have to say something perfect, or I have to look like I have it all together and then share that. And that's something that definitely is an old pattern for me, where don't let anybody really see that you're suffering. Don't let anybody really see that you are human and have anything going on. But it's when we become vulnerable, you know, Brene Brown's work about the difference between people who feel worthy and unworthy are that they know they're loved, even if they show sort of their, you know, their quirks or their shadows or their, the things that don't look so pretty, they still know they're loved, you know? And I think that's when we're the most powerful too, in our lives is when we can really be real and seen. And I had a great connection with my husband this weekend. We had a really meaningful conversation because I got real instead of resentful and pushing away and reacting, you know, like I could do. I just love that. I love that. And, and so, you know, in your first book, if I'm so spiritual, why am I still so anxious? You tell some pretty, uh, I don't know, sad, or I'm not even sure what the word is, but stories about your childhood and the trauma you experienced. So that kind of laid the foundation for your life and who you are and how you show up. So could you just talk a tiny bit about that so we can pair that to, well, then what did you do about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I grew up, um, in to two, you know, I was, my parents were both alcoholic, uh, you know, definitely dealt with alcohol abuse, drug addiction. My grandparents had drug addiction, um, alcoholism, pretty much everyone in my immediate family that I can remember or think of had drug or alcohol addiction overdoses, you know, in prison system, um, on, you know, uh, government assistance. It was like a lot of just homelessness. And we were homeless uh, for when I was born. We didn't have a home. We lived on a school bus and my dad had converted into our traveling home. And there was a lot of abuse, neglect, um, physical, emotional, sexual. Um, lots of my mom and dad eventually separated when I was young. And there was a lot of my mom was a bartender for my whole life and a lot of not showing up to my events, not being present, a lot of men coming in and out of the house. And when I was 10, my mom married a man uh, that she met at the bar for a very brief time and they had a child and that's my brother. And so I was 10 and he was a baby and I was essentially his mother. So from 10 to 18, I raised my brother to the point that he called me mom and I had to teach him that I was just like, no, I'm your sister. Um, mm. But I had a lot of responsibility as a child and I developed a lot of anxiety and I didn't go to any school events. I didn't have the social life. So I had a lot of social anxiety, just a lot of feeling of not being worthy, good enough, secret keeper would never let anyone in my home. And so I grew up feeling very separate and alone. And from 18 to 24, I, when I was 18, I moved out of the house uh, with another girl that I knew in my neighborhood who uh, was struggling just like I was. And we sort of found each other and said, let's get out of here. And we found an apartment. And, um, and then from 18 to 24, I struggled with my own alcohol abuse, which was actually quite confusing because 
when you come from in a lifestyle where your parents are abusing alcohol and it destroys your childhood and then you struggle with it, there's a whole level of shame that I know a lot of people suffer with when we continue a pattern that was so devastating as, as a young person. So that I hit a bottom at 24 and that started me on my journey. Yeah. Of where it's now been 25 years where I hit that point this year was 25 years. Yeah. Mm, Cause I turned 24. <laughs> That's why I'm 49. Yeah. That's amazing to, I mean, to see you, I don't know if you'd call it in recovery, but in, in your brightness, in your radiance now knowing that it's possible. And so I want to tie this into the topic of yoga and yoga therapy, because I know you are a yoga therapist, but you also are a teacher that is taking the ancient teachings, specifically Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, and bringing them to the world in a very practical way to help people deal with their anxiety and self-doubt because Patanjali's Yoga Sutra is what transformed you. So tell us about what happened when you started to learn Patanjali's Yoga Sutra and how that just started to get you on a new path, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, the Yoga Sutra has absolutely changed my life. And um, I felt, a, I just want to say, I felt a really deep connection to the Yoga Sutra that was almost unexplainable as this girl who grew up, you know, in this family I grew up in, never heard of, did not practice yoga and didn't really hear about yoga till I was, I, you know, heard about it, but didn't even really start practicing it until I was in my thirties, uh, early thirties. So I was not in my body. I was not athletic. I was not, you know, um, but the yoga sutra, I felt like I was home when I heard about, when I first started understanding and, and studying the yoga sutra and I first learned about them, <clears throat> you know, formally in my first yoga teacher training was when I first formally learned about them. But we, we had like this broad overview and we were taught about them from the perspective of how to teach them, not how to live them per se. Do you know what I mean? It's like, here's a yoga sutra. Here's how you teach it. Here's how you might theme it in a class and so on. And that's not bad or good. That's just how it was presented. And so I had this like understanding, but not, a, a, not an embodiment of them, not an experience of them. And we know that yoga is experiential. So in 2012, I had, I hit a bottom in my, with my anxiety and I was a yoga teacher and I, um, was, had a, I was doing quite well in LA teaching yoga and I was struggling inside. You know, I remember driving through Los Angeles going, I had a lot of private clients and going from house to house and I'd show up at their door, like namaste, hello. And then I'd leave and get back in my car. And it was like, oh my gosh, the anxiety would kick in the, the anxious thoughts were kicking in. And I felt like a fraud in a way. So I hit a bottom and that led me to, through circumstances and people, meeting a teacher who was really um, carrying the message and sharing about the Yoga Sutra specifically. And there were, when I started meeting with my teacher, I learned about Sutra 1-1, which is the first sutra. And what I learned about the first chapter of the Yoga Sutra is that it's actually for someone who's already in a state of yoga. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? Because here I was learning about Sutra 1-2 specifically in my teacher trainings, right? Which is the definition of yoga. But I had never been told, but that's for someone who's in a state of yoga. And then I was learning what a state of yoga actually meant. It didn't mean you could do a back bend. It didn't mean you could hold a downward facing dog. It didn't mean you rolled out your yoga mat every day and did a yoga practice. It meant something completely different. And to be in a state of yoga means to be established in yourself to be linked with that part of you that's unchanging, you know, in the Patanjali view. And so Sutra 1-1 changed my life. And it was Sutra 1-1 specifically, which is telling me that there's a place inside of me that doesn't suffer. And I had this profound shift, which was all up until that time for my whole life, for my whole life, I have been treating the problem. Like if I can just get enough information about my anxiety, if I can just get enough information about my triggers, if I can just learn to manage these symptoms better, I'm going to be okay. But the problem is, is that life is always changing. There's always something that's going to be happening. And so my practice started to shift from just managing my symptoms with my yoga to using my practice and understanding abhyasa in a new way, which is abhyasa, meaning that practice 
was about daily connecting to who I truly am, about daily connecting to the intimate part of myself, that unchanging part of myself. And yes, anxieties will arise and life will happen and triggers will come up and some scars may still be there. But I can handle them differently when I'm seated in that place of my true self. And this is a practical thing I was learning to do too. So there was just a shift from treating these problems to becoming more linked with who I am. And then from that place, addressing life that's always changing. And it, it sounds like such a subtle shift, but it's actually a huge shift because you've taken your focus not off of the symptoms, which are the anxiety, the self-doubt, right? Right. And they're still there, but you're saying there's even something more, there's something bigger, there's something deep inside me that is not affected by that anxiety and self-doubt. And you you could put in any emotion, that sadness, yeah. that grief, that uh, feeling of life's not fair, or I've been abused, you know, but yeah. paying attention. And, you know, it's interesting that you're bringing this up because my, my teacher um, has given me a practice recently. And at the end of the practice, I need, I'm being asked to put my hands on my heart and tune into that light within and chant the Gayatri and know the Gayatri mantra and know that I am that light. You know, that's a very practical example yeah. of what you're talking about, that every single day I have to remind myself, Amy, you are not your problems. You are not the things that are happening to you. You are the light. You are the light. Absolutely. And it's, it's, you know, in, in yoga sutra too. And I love what you just shared because it's that your teacher giving you that mantra and to sit and be the light is like every spiritual lineage, including yoga sutra has an emphasis on detachment surrender. And that we have to, we, what that does is the detachment and surrender creates that space, or this is how it's been for me, right? It creates that space. Mm. And it's like Victor Frankl, you know, he talks about like between, you know, stimuli and our response, there is that space. And in that space, space is our freedom. And I think the detachment helps me start to view something and not be something. So it's like, I can view a thought, I can view an emotion. I can see that to understand that we're not the thing that's arising, whether it's the feeling or the thought or the story or the memory, even the physical sensation and to have space from that, but to not just have space, like we're going to look at it and analyze it from the analytical mind, but to have space and to sit in a place that's safe as you, as you experience what is arising is really, really profound and really deep. And it takes a practice. And I, you know, speaking of like the asana practice itself, my asana practice started to shift when I started to really understand the Patanjali's yoga sutra, because I, I love that in each asana, there needs to be stira and sukha. There needs to be steadiness and ease. And to me, I translated that and how I work with the women I work with is we have to have a steadiness to be able to sit in something and lean into discomfort. Like we have to be able to lean in, not to like where it's so scary, but get to an edge a little bit, but be relaxed and detached in a way, like at the same time. So there's like this fluctuation that has to happen to deal with our trauma or our pain or whatever's arising. And so I started to realize that even in my life, like I was so, I was so strong all the time. I was so rigid. The anxiety had made me so like that being able to find those balances in the way I was treating myself and, um, and what's arising the anxieties, but to have that space and to have that steadiness at the same time was quite profound to start to learn, to do that and to understand that, Oh, that's part of this journey. That's part of this practice. You know, that is the practice, right? Yes. To, yes. To feel safe with ourselves where we're brave enough to feel the feels and to address them head on like you did this weekend with your husband and all that the two of you together and individually have going on and to be real and vulnerable and and have those tough conversations like that's the work that's that's what transforms us and and the whole while knowing that you are that light right yeah. It's true. And there's no one that's coming to do it for us. I mean, we have community, we have teachers, we have, we have each other, we have, we have our partners, but what I mean by that, I think, you know, you're sharing, which is we have to, 
have those conversations, do the work is I write in my book, there's a chapter titled, no one is coming because for me, this was, oh, it's not about blaming myself. It's not about blame. It's about taking responsibility that there's no one that's going to show up. That's going to know my story the way that I know it. That's going to know what I need the way I know what I need, or can learn to, to understand what I need. There's, there's just like that understanding that that relationship to ourselves is the most important relationship. And that that is part of the work is like coming back to be in relationship with who we are. And I don't think we're taught that from a young age in our society very much, or I wasn't, you know, it was be very outer focused. And so I think to be able to take responsibility for whether it's our patterns, whether it's the story we want to be telling about our life, whether it's how we want to treat ourselves, how we want to show up in our relationships. There's, it's like, you know, the solution doesn't show up in an Amazon box on my doorstep. Right. It's like, Ah, and if only, <laughs> if only, right. I think, wow, one, that click. <laughs> one click, one click. It's like, and I remember learning about the, the yoga sutra, the first sutra, which was so profound for me, but that first sutra also with the way I was taught, it was that it was like this commitment sutra that basically if you're not ready and, and I, this is the way it was explained to me, if you're not ready to kind of put that effort in, put the book down and come back later, because change is hard, but it's totally possible, but you have to stay committed because you're going to want to run. You're going to want to run out of the comfort zone. You're going to want run back to your comfort zone. And so we have to have that level of, okay, I'm really ready to do this. I'm really ready. And sometimes that takes a lot of suffering to get through first. We get a lot of suffering and then we're ready. But I think, um, yeah, that's important. You know, it's so interesting. I was talking to one of my nieces or nephews, I won't say which one, uh, <laughs> last night about a difficult situation. And they said, basically, like, I don't know anybody my age that wants to do this deep work. Now, this person doesn't know anything about the Yoga Sutra, doesn't understand that there is this path forward, but knows that he or she needs to do what you're talking about for themselves and is having a really hard time finding friends and or a life partner that's willing to also do that work. And I just said, most people on earth are not willing to do this kind of honest, authentic self-reflection and, and admit to themselves that nobody's going to come do this work for you. No psychologist, no yoga therapist, no, only you can do it maybe with a guide on the side and yeah while you're doing that hard work for yourself, link up with other people, what we call Sangha, who are also willing to do that work. It's like we're each in our individual pod doing it, but we also have other people that are willing to do it that we, like you and I are connected. We sometimes text or call and be like, yeah. oh my God, I've had a crap week, right? <laughs> we're both doing our individual work, but we're also connected yeah. together because it just is easier when you know there's other people doing the work on themselves too. Oh, 100%. You know, um, and I'm so glad your niece or nephew has you. It's like, we won't say who, I don't know which one, <laughs> but um, it's, it's so nice, you know, that they have you. And yeah, I moved to Nashville five years ago now. I left LA and that first year, and here I was all this way forward in my, in my journey, right? But that first year of leaving my, physical sangha, my physical community was so, um, it was hard, you know, and then finding my, my physical community here, I can still go on zoom and we can meet, you know, but yes, I think it's so essential to have a community, to have a teacher and to have your daily practice. And I think those three things are what I call my three pillars, like a teacher that doesn't run your life, but helps you see truths about yourself. Don't have a teacher that's telling you how to live your life. And a really great community, whether that's just, you know, three people or a larger community or at least one person. Um, and then our daily practice. And yeah, most people, what I find too, and it's not, a, I, I don't want to sound judgy, but it is, it's that aren't even asking themselves who they are or why we're here, or what life means, or what does my suffering mean? Or we get to a bottom and, you know, that whole sort of majestic tomastic cycle we end up on, right? We hit a bottom. And then we go right back to the thing that we think is going to help, but it doesn't help. It's not sustainable. And I just, that can feel lonely sometimes to feel like you're on a self-discovery path or a spiritual path. And you don't, 
feel that around you, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. I, I mean, I'm an introvert, so I'm okay with being alone, but it is lonely. It's really yeah. lonely. And I think that's where, you know, we have a yoga therapy school where there's um, many, many faculty and I've really started to open up about my personal struggles and not be the perfect person who's always in control and never vulnerable with this, this group, because I feel like that's not a healthy way to be, to kind of separate yourself as if there's, everything's always just fine. And here's my mask. And I think it's a little surprising to them. They're like, whoa, we've known Amy for most of them over a decade and we've never seen her show up. Right. So authentically. So I think it's freaking them out a little bit. <laughs> I think it's so good though. <laughs> oh, it's such a relief. I'm not alone in, in my suffering, even though yeah. I have to take care of my own suffering. I don't expect anyone to do it for me to know that you're not alone is just such an important healing tool all in of itself. It's so essential. And it's so important that our teachers or, you know, we all like, I have a teacher and then it's, I'm the teacher to some people and that we all are on this journey together, but that we're showing our true self. And I think that it can get scary or dangerous when a teacher sort of puts themselves on a pedestal or we're taught to do that. And I did that for so long. And, you know, you've, you've been so instrumental in helping me because you are so real and so authentic Mm -hmm. and you put yourself out there and it gives a lot of us permission to do the same thing. Like, okay, but I'm also not as effective or as I'm not living in my purpose. I'm, I'm not letting my, what I call my soul circle shine when I'm trying to be or wear that mask. And with the women I work with too, same thing. I always use my life, not to make it about me, but I'll bring up something and that'll open the conversation for them to feel safe. Like, yeah, okay. We can share about that too. And that I, I, think- I was in one of your groups a couple of months ago. <laughs> I, I joined on a Saturday morning and I was like really touched by number one, the women who you wouldn't think would ever do yoga were in, in this group. And, you know, I don't even know if you all do asana. I don't, I think you keep it kind of to philosophy and yoga sutra, that type of thing. But I was just really touched at their willingness to be vulnerable and to show up and to be in community with others while they did their personal work. Yeah, it is. It's, and they loved you. You were so, oh, it was such a nice conversation and you led such a great session. Um, yeah, the women that I, yeah, they, it's not traditional, like what we, you know, the cover of a yoga magazine or whatever it is, you know, or a lot of them have never done yoga their entire life. And they're in their sixties, fifties. Some, I have a woman is in her seventies. Who's, who's with us now. And I just got a message from, um, one of the members yesterday uh, because there's some homework each week to do. And she said, joy, like she's, she's in her, she's much older. And she said, I've been doing this stuff for a long time. She's even been in therapy. And she says the work that we're doing, she's like, I'm totally seeing it from this different perspective and how I have to own this and ch- to change this. And I think that it's not owning again, like blaming. It's sort of like, you know, in my book, and, and we've talked about this, I share that that big paradigm shift for me was when I started to realize that my anxiety when I hit that bottom in 2012 was actually feedback for me, that the anxiety that I was feeling that I was trying to push away and solve and fix was actually showing me where I am in relationship to my true self. Like when the higher my anxiety, it's like the clashes, right? Like the higher that anxiety, I was like, whoa, that's showing me either, you know, my attention has gone somewhere that is not sustainable, not serving me, not true, that is hurtful. And because, you know, it's that that whole idea of like what we, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe, that's what we see in the world. Mm. The our beliefs are bringing back to us evidence, right? So to prove our beliefs, right. So we have, so I call it our belief window, but she was seeing that she didn't realize that before it was like, wow, you mean like I, this is practical way of understanding how we are creating our reality or co-creating our reality. And part of taking ownership of that is, you know, is, is getting honest with ourselves. But I love that the women in the group, they are just open-minded. They are just totally ready for change. They're in that place of like, I want to feel better. I want to feel different. I want to have a new experience. I don't want to live this way anymore, you know, with anxiety or feeling less than, or so, but I think that whole idea of us taking commitment or taking responsibility and understanding how we're co-creating our experience. 
is so essential. And it's so ironic because so many, when we feel pain, chronic pain or depression or anxiety or insomnia or whatever it is, most people are looking for a way to either numb those sensations, ignore those sensations, some type of quick fix to make those feelings, emotions, thoughts, and sensations go away. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is, no, those are the messengers to tell you, you have lot, you have some disconnect from your deeper self, pay Mm -hmm. attention, lean into that, get vulnerable. And the higher your anxiety goes, or the higher my depression goes, the louder that message is that you are disconnected in some way. And something needs to be looked at here. It's just, it's so ironic to me because I'm guilty of it too. Like, oh, I'm exhausted or depleted. I need a glass of wine, right? Right. Instead of, I think I'll go and lay in my bed and feel what I'm feeling and ask, what is this about? Deeper self, what do you need to tell me right now? What am I not paying attention to? Like, what if we did that instead of the glass of wine, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, and what if we didn't look at even any of that as any sort of, and this was the big thing, like any sort of failure or wrongness or lack of success on our journey. You know what I mean? It was like, Mm. I I would go do that, you know, okay, well, I guess I have anxiety. So I'm doing something wrong. I'm still, I must be missing something. Something's not working here and yeah. And go, you know, numb out or go do another, you know, hardcore yoga class or, you know, go to a meeting or whatever it is we do, those things are great, but it's the spiritual principles and embodying them and under, that really will transform us and seeing the anxiety or whatever it is as feedback, not failure and understanding that anxiety is not the person. It's a pattern. And this was another big shift. It's not a big problem in my life that I have to solve. It's a pattern that I can change. And when I started to recognize that we can actually change patterns. Um, and that all these teachings that yoga are telling us, we can, we can build new samskaras. We can quiet down old patterns and build in new patterns. We are, you know, there's this whole teaching, you know, in our brain about our reticular activating system, like all understanding all of these, but somehow not applying them to anxiety because anxiety is a pathology that we're supposed to treat. And this is where like coming out of, you know, the work I'm doing and what I feel like I'm here to do in the world really triggered my anxiety because it scared me to speak up and say, wait, I don't want to look at this through the lens of pathology anymore. I'm not saying that it hasn't been labeled that, but it's like for all my life, I would go to people who would treat me for my anxiety and they would say, well, you have anxiety. So that's why you worry so much. Or that's why you think negatively. But I started to realize, no, wait a minute. It's, I think negatively, therefore I have anxiety. Like I think negatively, I have negative thoughts and I'm addicted to these negative thoughts. It's an addiction because there's so many addictions in the world. And what I find is with anxiety, out of my own personal experience, it's an addiction because our body becomes Mm -hmm. addicted to that, to this, to the chemicals that are produced, produced when we have the negative thoughts. And it's a loop pattern that's just been wired into our brain that is hard to break. And one of the hardest things to break is to change the way we think. And so Patanjali says, you're going to have to change this. We're going to have to change these patterns. We're going to have to be committed to thinking in a new way and believing in a new way and feeling in a new way. And it's not about just always looking outside of ourselves to tell us how to feel and think and believe, but we have to build it inside of ourselves first. And so this was just kind of scary for me to start to say, because I felt like, oh my gosh, what if somebody says, but wait, that's wrong. You know, even though it sounds so when I say it or we talk about it, it's, it, it makes sense. It's just scary to stand out sometimes, but yeah, I think it's really important. So let, let's talk about, you know, what, what you're basically saying is that we have mental, emotional, habitual patterns, what we call samskaras that are probably left over from our, our childhood trauma and, you know, all that's happened to us in this life. And, and you're saying that you can, you can work on changing that. You don't just have to be stuck in that loop. Tell us a little bit more about what you mentioned, the reticular activating system, because I think neuroscience is starting to show what the spiritual teachings have been saying for thousands of years. 
we're starting to see this in hardcore data with neuroscience. So can you tell mm-hmm. us a oh, little yeah. bit about that? Yeah, definitely. Well, I was going to grab this because I had this yesterday or on Friday. Can you even see that? Is that too little? No, it, it might be too great. little. No, okay, no, so- I see soul circle, belief window, world, outer world. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is something I describe in my book, but this middle one is the reticular activating system. So we have, the way I sort of describe it is we have three circles. So imagine we have three circles and they're lined up like this. The far left circle is our soul circle. It's who we truly are inside. And we know that like, whatever we call that eternal self has qualities. And that's, you know, free of fear, free of the clashes. It's all knowing it's, you know, vast and it's perfect. It's that pornatva. It's totally perfect. The kind of perfect that we don't even, there's no opposite for it. We're just complete wholeness, wellness. And that's who we really are. And anything else other than that has been learned in this lifetime. It's been learned. I mean, it may have been brought on from past lifetimes. We've got our ancestral stuff that we bring in, you know, we, what happens while we're in the womb, but it's not of our eternal self. Right. So then, so we have this belief window in the middle is what I call it in my book. And this is all the mental stuff. This is all the vasanas. This is all the vakulpas. This is all the samskaras. These are all of the things that we've imagined that has happened to us, the accumulations that we have in our life. And so those things that we start to believe. So in other words, I wasn't, my true self doesn't believe that I'm not worthy or good enough or that I sound stupid when I talk. Okay. Like, let's just say like how I actually talk to myself. Oh, you sound stupid, Joy. Like back when I was teaching yoga, I would break out. And when I first started teaching yoga, I would break out like almost like a rash. I would get so nervous thinking I would say the wrong thing. So if I believe that I am not good enough or what I'm going to say is stupid. Now the reticular activating system, the filter in my brain, which is part of the belief window, the samskaras, the patterns, the vasanas, the kulpas, all this stuff starts to look out in the world into my classroom into my yoga room for the people who look like they're slightly irritated with me or don't like me. One Mm. little blink of an eye. It doesn't have to be anything like my reticular activating system will start to look for it's a filter in your brain that will look for evidence to prove what you already believe. Right. It doesn't care if it's true. So what you believe will reinforce what you see in the world and what you see in the world will reinforce what you believe and you're trapped in this loop. And And it doesn't matter what anybody tells you. Someone could come in and go, no, people loved your class. It doesn't matter because you also have this confirmation bias that will say, no, you're going to confirm it to what you already believe. You're going to confirm whatever new information comes in to match what your beliefs are so powerful. Go ahead. I was interrupting. And I just wanted to say that those of us that have had some trauma are really, really good at reading the room and reading very, very subtle expressions, you know, somebody's eye does something or you, you hear a sigh. It's like, we're super tuned. Our superpower is to tune in and really think we know what people are feeling when really maybe they are irritated with us, but maybe they just have a lot going on in their lives. And so we take their, depletion from taking care of their kids and a a hard day's work as, oh, she just made that sigh, which means she doesn't like my class. Exactly. And you just touched on something else, which happens. And I wrote about in terms of the, of the belief window, the belief window is so important to understand, right? This whole idea of our reticular activating system, how we're creating our reality. And this relates to anxiety because we're anxiety for most of us is not something that's being triggered by really what's happening right now. It's how our body and mind have organized itself to respond to this moment. And so the meaning we give something is also part of our own belief system. So anything that happens, and this was hard for me to understand at first, but I really believe it in the depths of my being that everything only has the meaning. Anything only has the meaning we give it. So even my past, And this is something I had to come to terms with was like the past, the way that what happened to me as a child, I couldn't walk around with the meaning I was giving it, which was, I was a victim. Life is unfair. No one loved me. My parents were jerks. They were selfish. My parents were sick individuals that had alcoholism and drug addiction. And then they had a childhood that had affected the way they parented. Also, if I wanted to walk around and keep believing that life's unfair, 
my reticular activating system is going to look for that. So everything, I have to start to empower myself and have a commitment, a level of high adhikara, I call it like a high studentship in my life, where I'm even going to take some of the most difficult things and decide what I want them to mean for me. And so everything that happens, whether it's that little twitch in the room of someone's eye, I could go, oh, that must mean they don't like me. Or that could mean they had a twitch or they got dust in their eye. But the best way to find out what it means if it's really bothering me is to talk to them or to talk to someone or to get clarity, which was a whole scary thing in and of itself. But that is all part of the reticular activating system. And so yoga is for me, what Patanjali is teaching, what I know and believe is that we're cleaning this belief window is that the work of yoga is to every day because life is always changing. I have to every day clean my belief window is to every day seek to have Viveka and clarity, not only of what's going on out there, because that's what, that's what sort of the, the more Western model is to clean up what's going on out there. But the more Eastern spiritual deep model is to also clean up that misperception between who I think I am and who I really am. And so then I can start to look out into a world and see a different world and something new will be reflected back to me. But what even happens that was, that's more amazing is that as we clean this, our Purusha or our true self shines through and gets to be part of this world with us and enjoy life. And we get to be who we are. And so this is an everyday thing though. This is not like you take an eight week program and it's fixed forever, right? Like this is, you learn principles. Patanjali has given us great process and we do it and we commit to it. So that is such, I just love that. It was super helpful. I have to say the teachers that I want to study with are the humble ones who I can see are in the mud struggling with the rest of us to do that every single day and catching themselves, making assumptions and having expectations and misinterpreting, and then taking it back in and reflecting like, that's who I want to study with. Right. Me too. Yeah. Uh, it's, Me too. it's, and it's rare. And usually those teachers are very quiet. They're not out there, you know, waving flags and, and judging people and right. on social media telling everybody who's wrong and you, you didn't do it right. And you know, you're, you're Bujangasana, you, you used your glutes and didn't use your glutes, you know, like, like who cares? This I know is, this is yoga. This is yoga. And I will say that, you know, personally for me too, I am, I am also an introvert and putting myself out with there with absolute statements, like three things that are going to fix your life forever. Or do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's really, um, it's getting, this is yoga is getting into this deep, deep work. And, 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 I think there's something that I'm learning about myself because I get, I, I don't know, I, the whole social media thing, I love it and it can give me some anxiety, right? Like, mm-hmm. but is to get out there and talk about this stuff in this way that's true for me or true for whoever's sharing. And then the right people will find us and we'll connect with the right people. But I love to, um, yes, we have to be talking about this because everybody, if anybody says that they don't have any mud at all, they've got mud. They just can't see it. Right. It's like, uh, run, <laughs> run because we all have mud. Oh my goodness. I have, I have so much mud. Like I can, when I catch into resentments or I'm blaming my husband or I'm, you know, it's whoa. Okay. There's some stuff going on here and yes, but every day cleaning this belief window and every day being willing to go, okay. Having the humility that life is always changing. I don't know everything. Oh, and there's something that's really important about this because cleaning the belief window, for example, um, what I used to love to do was to try to clean other people's belief windows. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I have a lot of Windex and a lot of, yeah, it's so much more fun to clean everyone else's. Why is that? Oh, it's so much more fun. And it's also, then I don't have to change myself. It's like, oh my gosh, you get to do all the changing and you're the reason that I'm miserable. And you're the reason that I'm unhappy. And as I was starting to take more responsibility for cleaning my own belief window, what I came to realize is that almost, and I would say all of my suffering. Okay. This is like a radical, even like I'm saying all of my suffering. Now there's pain that happens in my life, definitely pain and traumas, but the suffering that I was living with became out of my own misperceptions. 
came out of my own lack of clarity, came out of my own black and white thinking, catastrophic thinking, mind reading, uh, pointing the finger. Um, the meanings I was making of things were causing me so much suffering and they can come back up. But as I'm cleaning that off, wiping that down, you know, whether that's through practicing ahimsa, my mom was just here for two weeks, 13 days. Okay. And so <laughs> did you get the Windex out for her? <laughs> my twitches are coming back. Like, ah, ah, cause I would get this neck twitch when I was a child and I, I could feel it. like, Oh my God, my neck twitches. Um, but like, wow, do I want to clean her belief window? Right. It's like, Oh my goodness. And so, but again, it's like, Whoa, here we go. So Joy, you get to clean your belief window. You get to look at, there's no other way because if I keep waiting for her to change or her to be different, I'm going to be miserable. All I can do is change what, how I want to be. But here and again, that doesn't mean we're passive and we're just sitting back like doormats. It's, are there some boundaries I have to set? Is there something I need to say in a way that can be heard here? You know, do I need to go about and do what I need to do anyways for my day? Have my you know, because my guilt would say, well, I got to be with her 24 seven. She really needs me to be with her the whole time. Um, but there's one teaching in, in the eight limbs, which is ahimsa. And I re recognize how I am not at a level of ahimsa. Okay. I've not reached mastery over ahimsa because ahimsa is really right. Can I, can people be who they are around me and feel comfortable to be who they are? And I could see as my mom was here, like, no, I still want her to be different. You know what I mean? I still can kind of have that edginess and, and fall into that blame, not being so kind sometimes, whether it's in my expressions or the way I'm just- Or, or your internal judgments of internal just what judgments. we even think. People feel yes. that. They feel that, it. Yeah. So I was just yeah. like, wow, there's always more work to do. So anybody who says that they're like, oh, I've got it all down. I mean, we all are on a journey. Yeah. But the more I can clean that up, my anxieties go down the more that those accumulations are on there, my anxieties are high. And so it's that, oh, because this is getting blocked out. This is getting walled out in a way, right? Like, mm. yeah. You're loose because of your beliefs that, you know, you have, you're actually shutting down that Purusha from shining through and being present in your daily life. That's uh, powerful. Uh -huh. It really isn't. That's it. And you can feel it. But then our tendency is because the ego mind is what's running the show. Then when we are walled off, when we are in fight or flight, when we are in, because fight or flight, isn't like, okay, so if there's a tiger in my house right now, I'm going to run from that tiger. Right? Well, what happens is, is that when there's really no tiger, it's the thoughts that we start fighting with ourselves or with situations. Well, they're really wrong. Well, no, I'm stupid. Well, no, it's me. Whatever it is, we're fighting we're internally fighting. And when we're in that fight, we're in that ego mind and the ego is not bad. It's just that the ego is very, is outer focus. The ego is pulling your attention out. The ego is linked to that fight or flight to that sense of survival. And so it's very, we've got to like sort of let that part of us go for a minute and quiet down and get back in touch with what's true. But again, that is why daily practice is so important because if I'm not in the habit of a daily practice, I'm not going to do that in the middle of a fight or flight brawl. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm going to be like, no, you hurry up and change so I can be happy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard, Joy. I, that, especially when we get all wound up, that ability, as I say, to get in your bed, this is where I do it and pull inward. And I can literally feel, but no yeah. judgment, but you know, all the things that my little mind, and I have to say, shut it down, girl, bring it yeah. in. Let's, let's connect here again. And it might take a half an hour to shut it down, bring it in, shut it down, bring it in, shut it down, bring it in until I can finally settle into my own emotional heart and check in with myself and not make it about anything out there but what does Amy need yeah. in this moment for herself? And how can I get that need met? A hundred percent. And it's, this is, as you're sharing that, I'm thinking, this is why spirituality is not passive spirituality. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's not like, oh, I'm going to go into my Purusha, into my soul and, or into my true self. This isn't spiritual bypassing. Right. And I know you're, you talk a lot about that, how it's not that it's, isn't about why well, I'm so spiritual. So I'm just going to bypass all the human part of me. It's, no, I'm integrating. I'm saying this human part of me is helping me become more integrated. 
as I learn how to use it and to use it as feedback or just the tool itself to come back into myself and then deal with what I need to deal with if I have to deal with something to let that human part, because we are human as well. So it's not just about being spiritual and checking out of life. It's, can I sit in the seat? Can I be awake enough? Because when we are run by ego, what actually is happening is we're living an unconscious life. We're not awake. We're unconscious. We're autopilot. We're running on our patterns. We're robots in a way, right? Because that's not how I really want to show up, but that's what my brain's telling me to do. But our brain is like a computer, as we've talked about. And, and it's not as intelligent. It's not intelligence like our truth, like our spirit self. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's hard work being spiritual. <laughs> it is. And, and you have a second book coming. We don't have a whole lot more time. Yeah. But you have a second book coming on self-doubt. Would yeah. you say self-doubt is also a sign or a signal that you've lost connection with your true self? Absolutely, because it's one of the nine obstacles, right? And it's one of the the most uh, debilitating obstacles because you've, when we fall into self doubt, just like anxiety, we're then being run by a mind that's driven by separateness, mm. and so it's like we're separate from self. But self doubt, to me, the way that I think of it is, and how it's presented in my life is that it's the paralyzing side of anxiety. So mm. it's like anxiety, but then it's like there's this paralysis. Like we don't, when we're stuck in self doubt, we can't make decisions. We don't move forward in life. We're constantly comparing ourselves to others. It shows up as, well, take another, you know, class. Like, don't get out there and put yourself out there. You know, read another book. <clears throat> and I'm not saying taking classes or reading books aren't important, but it's constantly telling us to gather more information. And um, that you're not and, enough the way you are. And that you're not enough. And self-doubt is a form of, it's that fight or flight. It's that protective mechanism. Well, if I doubt myself enough, maybe I won't, I won't be judged, you know, and I think this is really important because I, I used to hear how we're not really afraid of, afraid of failure. We're afraid of success. And I used to not understand that. I was like, that's stupid. <laughs> like, wait a minute. We're not, a, why would we be afraid of success? And now I'm understanding it more. It's like, <clears throat> it's sort of like, we're not afraid of the dark as much as we're afraid of the light. And what I know from my experience is that when I stand in my light, the reason it's so scary is that you can be seen and someone may not approve of you. Someone might say, Hey, Joy, what you're talking about sounds really dumb. I don't agree with you. And guess what? I've learned that that's okay. It doesn't always feel good. I'm not saying it feels good, but that's why we're scared of success. That's why we're scared of the light more than the dark. Because when we're in the light and we let our light shine and we let ourselves be who we are, there will be people who will not approve of us. And we can't wait. And our flaws will show along with our radiance. I mean, exactly. It, it may actually be that I have a blind spot and what I'm starting to call the, the yoga mob will come after me. I mean, it, it's true. We all have it's blind true. spots. We all have flaws and, and there's some really angry people in our community that are looking to point out and, and yeah. it's terrifying to, to stand in your light, knowing that every part of you can be seen Yes. And potentially <laughs> have someone pointed out how, you know, imperfect or horrible you are. Oh my goodness. Yes. And if we aren't doing our own inner work or have our teacher, our community, that will, that will hit that reticular activating system. It's like, oh yeah. my gosh, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it will start to happen. Right. If we're not doing our work and yeah. So self-doubt is a big one. It's one of the obstacles and we can all raise our hand and say, we doubt ourselves. I mean, I doubt myself. Like it comes up. But of course, but the difference is today, it's like, it doesn't stop me as much. I can still move forward. I can, I can, I can tolerate it when someone doesn't like me. Do I love it? No, but I go to people who will help me work through that. Um, also, we do need to focus more on our strengths and our weaknesses. There's a lot of research around that. A lot of studies that show that when we focus in on our strengths, right, versus our weaknesses, we're actually more successful, whether that's, you know, in the outer world or the inner world. So, um, Yeah. And Definitely. do you have a title for your second book? I know that it will be out, I think, in the fullest form in the fall of 2021. Do you have a yes. title for it? I do. It's called Releasing Self-Doubt. I actually got the cover here. Isn't that pretty? Oh, it's so yeah. gorgeous. I love the golden so tones. Releasing yeah. Self-Doubt by Joy Stone. And, yeah. and wow. This, uh, yeah. And it's a holistic guide to letting go of what other people think of you and finally believing in yourself. So that has been my journey. That has definitely been a big part of my journey too, you know, 
I need to believe in so, myself. Yeah. So Joy, you and I believe so much in what, what we're talking about today and how the Patanjali Yoga Sutra can transform one's reticular activating system, our perceptions, our connection to our, our most radiant self, our ability to show up in the world and be vulnerable and be seen even in our flawed existence. And that we both kind of feel like a lot of what's going on in the asana yoga world, not that we don't both love asana, I think we both do it every day, but <clears throat> maybe yoga teachers and yoga therapists and even yoga students are maybe getting so hooked into this westernized version of asana that they haven't really gone as deep as we would like to see into these teachings. And so I don't know if I should announce this, but I'm going to, we've kind of semi or maybe fully committed to a training program where we take yoga teachers, yoga therapists, even advanced yoga students through the Patanjali Yoga Sutra text and really help them learn and apply in a very practical way the ideas so that lives can be transformed. And maybe yoga teachers will do more than have a theme in their yoga class around the kleshas. They'll actually start to live it and be it and do it. And I think yes. we've committed to, to doing that in 2022. Have we not? We have, and I'm so excited. I mean, I cannot, I, the world needs this. Like I just got lit up just even like, I, I mean, I was just talking this with my husband this weekend about what we're going to do. And the world needs this. We need this deeper solution. We need this deeper answer. And that's what Patanjali yoga sutras are. It's an answer to suffering. And it's an answer that works. Um, and yoga teachers to be armed with or yoga therapists, you know, I use the yoga, the Patanjali Yoga Sutras as the base, the foundation of my coaching practice, my teaching practice yeah. with the women I work with, with anxiety. It's a yoga based, but it's yoga sutra based. Yeah. And uh, we need more sutra and less asana. I'll say it. You know what I mean? There's a lot of asana out there. <laughs> like I like asana, but it's not the, it's not the whole of yoga, you know, and, and there's so many more tools. I'm excited. Yes. Very excited. All right. Well, I know you have a firm stop time because <laughs> you have another meeting and I'm just so grateful that you joined me today. And it was really a, a deep talk. I think people might have to listen to it more than once to really get it. It's, it's very subtle work. And mm -hmm. I'm just so grateful that you are willing to come on today and have this discussion and reframe anxiety and self-doubt for us. Oh my gosh. Well, thanks for having me. I always love talking with you. <laughs> Thank you. All right, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Yoga Therapy Hour with Amy Wheeler podcast. Another nonprofit organization that we like to support through this podcast is the Krishnamacharya Yoga Mandram in Chennai, India. They are the source for the teachings of the Optimal State Yoga Therapy School, and we are so grateful. The KYM's Mitra Division offers free yoga therapy training to a large number of socially and economically underprivileged children and women in Chennai. Feel free to support them through the link listed below on Red Circle. And we also have details on our website, which is also listed below. Please also note that we have recently developed a mental health tracking mobile app based on yogic and Ayurvedic principles. The app helps practitioners to observe their mental habits and patterns throughout the different times of day, the seasons of the year, and the stages of life. This is a useful tool for healthcare providers, yoga teachers, yoga therapists, and all of the people that they serve. Check it out on the App Store. It's called the Optimal State App. And finally, a special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria and Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.peter.com.
zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.